It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Makai Becton, ladies and gentlemen, human beings that large should not run as fast as Makai Becton did. And if you like people just abusing other humans, the Makai Becton tape is for you. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Quick pass to Crowder trying to get him out of the space. Slopes a tackle, and there he goes. Crowder, it's a foot race, and Crowder is in there. A 69-yard touchdown. Takes a shot. Here's Corey Davis, wide open. Davis. Still going, and he's in for the touchdown. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's the q Oh, my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the playlikeajet.com digital studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at playlikeajet1. And I wanted to go outside the Jets bubble to get a different view of what happened with the Jets draft class And so I went and brought back somebody who's rapidly becoming one of my favorite guests, former right-hand man for Jerry Reese in the Giants front office for 10 years. He's got two Super Bowl rings these days working for NFL Network, Mr. Mark Ross. Mark, thanks for coming back on the show, sir. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Scott. So let's talk about what the Jets did here. The last time you were on, we discussed the Zach Wilson-Justin Fields scenario and you told me you like both of them, but you didn't tell me what you would do at number two. Would you have gone Zach Wilson or would you have gone Justin Fields here? <laughs> Zach Wilson. I'm on a Jets podcast. We're going, we're going Zach Wilson. No, I, I do. Um, I, I did love Zach Wilson. I love both of those guys. But um, yeah, when the, the first time I saw Zach, when I watched him during the year, started hearing the buzz, I said, uh, this guy should be the first pick. He won't be the first pick, but he should be the first pick in the draft. And I just thought that just because how natural he is at playing the position you've heard about the different ways he can deliver the ball but it's just the pocket feel that he has the movement in and out of the pocket uh the 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 different throws that he can make the arm strength I mean he just kind of shows you those sort of qualities that the big time guys now you hear about Aaron Rodgers and Mahomes which is not fair but just it is there are similarities in the way he plays to those guys. Not saying he'll be those guys, but there are definitely similarities in just the naturalness of how he plays the game. So are you saying you had him ranked above Trevor Lawrence? Yep, I did. I did. I was I've been uh, you know, I've been on the Trevor Lawrence is not the greatest thing since sliced bread bandwagon from day one, but no one wants to listen <laughs> throughout the whole process. No one <laughs> wanted to talk about Trevor Lawrence and his tremendous flaws that he has. And it's really, I've never seen a prospect that has not gotten critiqued like Trevor Lawrence. And, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect prospect. And he's just kind of skated through this whole deal. And I think it's just because everyone, you know, it's the confirmation bias that Mm -hmm. people have. Like he heard he's the greatest for three years. And so he must be the greatest. So let's just ignore that he may not be the greatest, uh, but time will tell and we'll see. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'm curious. I felt in a way that even if a front office felt that Trevor Lawrence wasn't the best guy, so let's say they had Wilson or Fields or Lance or Mac Jones rated ahead of him, they would be afraid to not take Lawrence because, as you said, everybody had that consensus. So if they passed on Lawrence and Lawrence turned out to be really good, they would look so foolish for not doing the obvious thing. It's sort of like what Charlie Casserly did 
with Houston where he bucked the consensus and everybody laughed at him for taking Mario Williams over Reggie Bush, and he turned out to be right, but most general managers wouldn't have the guts to do something like that, right? Yeah, 100%. It was just you you can't not take him, and that was the deal with what Jacksonville did. It's why Urban Meyer came back. It's why everything's going on the way it is because they were all in. Just from the, when the owners right from the start says, we want to take Trevor Lawrence. I want to take Trevor Lawrence. You know, Urban Meyer told that story. He's like, well, we're going to do our due diligence. Of course it was going to come out as Trevor Lawrence. He wasn't going to get hired. The owner said, we want Trevor Lawrence. And then they, they take Zach Wilson. So, um, yeah, yeah, I've been in the doing this for 20 plus years and you think it's easy for scouts that they evaluate, but no, it, it, they, they fall into peer pressure. They fall into media pressure. And it's a lot of group think, you know, sheep think in the NFL that would surprise you as opposed to people really saying, you know what, it, it's harder to be in a draft room and you're one dissenting voice of 15 than it is to be the 14 other people that are just going together. So that's a hard thing to do, but I've never had a problem with that. So I think with the Trevor Lawrence situation, it was, it wasn't just 15 in a draft room. It was 15 million people who thought this guy is going to be the greatest person ever. And, um, you know, no one wanted to go against that. So what were the flaws that you saw that a lot of people didn't talk about? So let's just break it down where, okay, with Zach Wilson, they said, well, Zach Wilson didn't play against anybody, right? Well, neither did Clemson. They destroyed everybody in the ACC. The ACC was terrible. They won their games by an average of 30-plus points. Um, so that, that was one thing. Well, no one talked about the level of comp. They just heard the ACC, but the ACC wasn't very good. Okay, then you heard about uh, Justin Fields. Well, he goes to his first read. Well, there were studies that Trevor Lawrence, he went to his first read more than any of these guys by far. And when you watched him on tape, that's pretty much what he did. He just kind of got the ball and, and chucked it to the first guy. Another thing was he always had a clean pocket and multiple wide open receivers. I would pause the tape on most of his throws and you could really pause it. And he just didn't have any pass rusher within three or four yards of him. And then you could look at the secondary and you see the two or three receivers without anybody close to him. So everything was so easy for him, almost like a seven on seven, the way he could just produce the ball. So the times he had to get sped up, meaning when he did have some sort of rush or things weren't comfortable, he did not react to those things well. And he did not perform as well. His accuracy was off. He didn't show tremendous playmaking when things broke down, like I thought Zach did or like I thought um, – Justin Fields did. I thought those guys had tremendous playmaking where Trevor Lawrence didn't. So those are the two main things. Then the, the last thing, the hugest thing for me was on the, the the biggest stage these last two years, you know, everybody talks about his freshman year winning the national championship, which was amazing, but he really didn't like dominate that game. He played well, but it wasn't as if you looked at that game and said, wow, Trevor Lawrence won that game for Clemson. So now you look at the last two years, LSU national championship game against just uh, Joe Burrow, Joe Burrow by far was the best player on the field. You would look at Trevor Lawrence in that game in a bubble and say, that guy's just kind of an okay quarterback. And then this year, because again, he got sped up there and he had to make plays. He couldn't do it. And then this year against Ohio state, we all know Justin Fields by far was the best player on the field. If you watch that game, didn't know anything. Say, wow, that guy by far is the best player on the field. Trevor Lawrence had to get sped up. He had to make plays. He couldn't do it. He looked very average. So those are some things to me that were major, major question marks and very glaring that, well, wait a minute now. We're talking about this guy to be the, the, the best player of all time, yet his two biggest games his last few years, he wasn't even the best player on the field. 
and the, he had serious concerns with what you saw with that. Uh, but again, it got ignored. It got pushed over under the rug, and uh, and it, it just and again, the last thing with the trip, the 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 Justin Fields were the work ethic and all that. And then you heard Trevor Lawrence come out and actually say, well, football is not the end all be all for me. And I don't need this to define me. And then even that got spun into a positive. Whereas if Justin Fields said that, and he got wrongly accused of saying something he didn't say, if Justin Fields had said that he, we, he might not even got drafted. So just a lot, all those things kind of added up together, just raised some serious concerns for me. It is interesting that Trevor Lawrence really did not get any criticism the way that Zach Wilson and Justin Fields and Trey Lance and Mac Jones certainly got plenty of criticism as well. So it is weird how he kind of slipped under the radar there. As you said, I think it's just one of those things where the narrative was for three years that Trevor Lawrence is the generational prospect. And I'm not saying that he's not an excellent prospect. It's just that a lot of people were afraid to cut against that narrative. I want to ask you about the rest of those quarterbacks, though. Justin Fields sliding all the way down to 11 and the Bears making that bold move to get him. Trey Lance at number three after the 49ers traded two first-round picks to go and get him. So both of those quarterbacks ended up being involved in a trade. However, one of them slid much further than expected. And then Mac Jones goes all the way to 15 to the Patriots. I really love Justin Fields to the Bears. I applaud the Bears for getting aggressive there. And Mark, you've been in a front office before. You've been in several of them, actually. And so you know how this works. Nagy and Pace were in big trouble. They were on the hot seat, and they had to do something. So when this opportunity presented itself, I think they had no choice but to take it. Steep price, but if Fields ends up being what everybody thinks, it's not going to be any big deal for them, and they're going to look like geniuses for making that move. And then Trey Lance, boy, you want to talk about a risk. Again, you've been in several front offices, and that's something where you're giving up a ton for a guy that doesn't have a lot of tape and wasn't asked to do that much at North Dakota State. So very risky there. And then Mac Jones, the Patriots sat where they were, didn't make a move. Jones slid down the board. They were able to nab him. He's not a traits guy like the rest of these players, but very smart decision maker, very accurate. And I think for where they got him, pretty good value. So what do you think of where those three guys went and how their NFL careers may go? Yeah, so just taking, first of all, number three, what San Francisco did. And when, when you heard about, well, Mac Jones may be there, and I never believed that. And I didn't see Mac Jones as the third pick in the draft. Yeah, the 15th pick, sure, but not the third. But even there at three, to me, it, it should have been Justin Fields because, okay, they, they talk about fitting the offense and the talent that Trey Lance has. Well, Justin Fields, in my view, has more talent than Trey Lance. I'm not, I don't know why. Again, there's certain narratives that get put into play and they just don't get disputed. Justin Fields has more talent than Trey Lance, but he has also accomplished tons more. So it's like, why would you not want the guy who has the talent and the accomplishments? And I compared it to when I was – on air when in uh, 1999 I was part with the Philadelphia Eagles where we took Donovan McNabb and there was Achilles Smith that you know, uh, Tim Couch was the first pick but Achilles Smith what three Dante Culpepper was in that draft Cade McNown but I compared it to us taking Donovan versus Achilles Smith and that Achilles Smith was kind of a one-year guy talked everyone talked about his upside his, his natural talent and ability and but Donovan McNabb had that talent as well but he was four-time Big East player of the year all Big East, you know, he accomplished so much at Syracuse, and it was more than just the talent. It was the production. It was the pedigree. It was the character. It was all those things put in together while we took Donovan. So I kind of compared that to the Lance versus Field situation and that 
Justin Fields was the Donovan McNabb in my view, and Trey Lance is more the Achilles Smith, the raw guy that you hope to develop. Um, so I think Justin Fields went to the perfect spot, and I said that leading up to the draft where, where we talked about you know, we had segments who who would have to make a move, and I said it's got to be the Bears. There's absolutely no way that Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace can go into next season and say Andy Dalton is going to save our jobs. So it was more than just the draft pick. Mm-hmm. It was we need to do something to save our job and this franchise. So I always look for them to kind of make a move. And once you saw Justin start sliding, I said they got to do it. They're going to do it. And sure enough, they jumped up in there and got it. So, again, I think Justin is perfect there, not just on the field. But, again, the quarterback kind of has to represent the city. He's built for that. He's been a star his whole life. He's played in the Big Ten there, Chicago, the whole deal there. So, I just think he is the perfect fit for Chicago. Play like a Jet. Play like a Jet. As we talk about the Jets draft class now, I wanted to move to their second pick in the first round, Elijah Vera Tucker at number 14. The Jets jumped up from 23. They gave up both their third-round picks. They did get back a late fourth-rounder, though, from the Minnesota Vikings. What did you think of this trade? What did you think of Vera Tucker as a prospect? And Talk to me a little bit about how a trade like this works because Joe Douglas obviously didn't just call the Vikings. I'm sure he was poking around a couple of different teams, seeing if he could work out some sort of deal. And he even said a couple of days before the draft that he was trying to put together some tentative deals so that he wouldn't have to scramble on draft night. So talk a little bit about how that works and what you thought about this pick and the trade-up that the Jets made. Well, number one, I love the move. I love the player, and I love the move. Elijah Barry Tucker was my second guy, second, third guy, number one inside guy for sure. And then even I thought you could try him at tackle, and he'd be one of the the first or second best tackles in the draft. I mean, he is so quick. He is so efficient with his hands. Um, He's competitive. He's smart, plays with excellent balance. I I just love him as a player. So – uh, when that happened and the Jets traded, I, I was on a we're on a group uh, a chat with the, our producers and stuff with the network and other. And I said, "This is Vera Tucker." I text right before I said, "This got to be Vera Tucker," just because I thought this guy was, you know, worthy of going, you know, top twelve or something like that. So I, I think he's going to be a tremendous player for a long time. But what happens is you just when you have all these draft meetings and the, the you know. The, Throughout the months, you kind of talk about the players individually and then kind of rank them. But then the last few days, you're really just dialing down on which players you really would invest in going to get if they fell to a certain spot. So and what you would actually give up to get them. So the the Jets and Joe Douglas, they talked about for days. Okay, well, Elijah, you know, Elijah Barry Tucker, we love him. We think he can be an impact player. If he gets to a certain point, we will be willing to invest this to go get him. Um, and you call teams to say you don't tell them which player, but you just tell them, hey, we'd be really interested in getting up into this spot. And this is what we give up. So all this has kind of worked out days before so that when draft day comes, it's really just kind of a formality where no one's taken off guard. It's not a shock. You're just calling like, hey, this what we talked about the other day. Is this still in the play? Yes or no, depending on if that team has somebody there that they want to take or if they feel comfortable with moving out of that slot. So. This had already been worked out. They talked about it. Once they saw Barrett Tucker start going, I'm sure they said, all right, this is what we talked about. This is who we want. We feel he can be an impact. Let's go get him. And, you know, you always say, well, I think it was worth the risk, especially, again, like he said, that they traded back later, got some more picks as well. So, And they just had a lot of picks. So it's not like 
some teams who had few, they've got a ton of picks. You know, the, the Jamal Adams trade, the gift that keeps on giving for them, I think. So I think it, it was a tremendous trade for them, and I, and I really like it. And then at number 34, the Jets get Elijah Moore, the wide receiver from Ole Miss. And, Mark, I know you loved Elijah Moore. You talked about him when you were on the show last time. And I know that you said on NFL Network that he was your favorite player in the draft. And I got to be honest, I liked Elijah Moore when I watched his tape, but I didn't dig in that much because when you're looking at one team, you look specifically at the players that you think are heavily in play for them and you take the deepest look at them, at least when you're not a scout. Obviously, when you're a scout or when you're somebody who analyzes Mm -hmm. these guys for a living, you have more time and that's what you do. So you sit there and you deeply analyze all these prospects. I liked what I'd seen out of Elijah Moore, but I was a little iffy on them picking him at number 34 just because I thought Tevin Jenkins was there. Maybe you grab him, you put him at right tackle, Elijah Vera Tucker at guard, and now all of a sudden you've fortified the offensive line. So that was sort of where I would have gone. But then once the Jets drafted Elijah Moore, I took a deep look at him. I looked at a lot of his tape. And I was absolutely blown away. I can't believe this guy didn't go in the top 15. As I said to a friend of mine, it's like watching Antonio Brown with Deshaun Jackson's speed. Just incredible. He has this combination of being able to catch anything, incredible route running, and blazing speed. That's deadly. It's almost impossible to stop. You look at what he did with Ole Miss. He was a one-man band. So, Mark, I'm sure you love this pick, but I'm on board now. I absolutely think that Elijah Moore could not only be a really good receiver in the NFL, but I think he has what it takes to potentially become a top-of-the-line, number-one type wide receiver. Yeah, um, well, I'm glad you actually dug into it and watched some more. And that's the difference between when people say they watch tape or they watch the player and actually studying a player. There's different levels of of actually evaluation. And, you know, Elijah Moore wouldn't be a, oh, let me just glance at this guy. And I heard about this little guy at Old Miss. You know, when you watch, you have to watch him and study him to see. But when you do, it's, you know, I just loved him right right from the start. And as, as you said, he was my favorite guy in the draft. Not that I wouldn't say he's going to be the best, but just when you when I watched a player and I just wanted to just keep watching him over and over, it was Elijah Moore. And that, and that's just because, I mean, he is he's so versatile. You know, he is super sudden. This change of direction, his route feel is incredible. His ball skills are excellent. His run after catch. As you mentioned, he can fly. I mean, this guy isn't just a slot guy. You think of a slot guy as kind of just quick but not fast. I mean, he can just run by people and, um, you know, super slick with his change of direction. You know, a couple games they played him at running back and, uh, you know, the South Carolina game. And you when you watch him get carries in that game, you'd think he was a runner. I mean, his ability to see holes and bounce and, and cut is just incredible. So, yeah, I think Elijah Moore is just really going to be perfect for the for the Jets and for Zach Wilson and especially since you got the bigger guys and Corey Davis, Denzel Mims, you know Crowder, you know what he does, but you know this guy gives you much more than that just because he can run. Crowder was real, never really a fast guy, so some guys are just natural football players that are just always going to make plays and just no matter their size, speed, whatever. And this guy, I think, will do that. 
Mark, as we were talking about before, going along with the crowd, it seems to be a pattern, especially with social media now, where somebody will put out a scouting report and then everybody just gloms onto it and repeats the talking points. And this, to me, was another example because I saw quite a few people that had listed as Elijah Moore's negatives that he's not a polished route runner. And I have no idea how you could watch this guy play and think that. <laughs> that's laughable. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, I have no idea whoever, I've never, I, I don't read other people's stuff. You know, I just, that's what I've done day one. I, I evaluate the tape because I feel like I evaluated the best. And, you know, I always just being the, you know, running draft meetings, you have to listen and all that stuff and take everybody's into account, but certainly not online stuff. But yeah, whoever put that out that he couldn't run routes, they need to just uh, not do that anymore. Not, <laughs> not put any opinions anymore. There you go. Mark Ross telling you to change your career, go into another line of work. If you <laughs> looked at Elijah Moore's tape and think that he wasn't a polished route runner, because like we said, just an incredible route runner. I think he's a lead at it. I'm really excited to see him as a New York Jet. I'm also really excited to see the guy that they got at number 107, and that's Michael Carter, the running back out of North Carolina. He's a smaller guy. They did the thunder and lightning thing at North Carolina. Javante Williams, the big bruiser. And Michael Carter, more of the speedy, shifty guy. But he can make plays in the passing game. He can make plays carrying the ball. He's dynamic, a really good leader. You talk to people around North Carolina, they all loved him. The players looked to him. The coaches looked to him. That's the type of guy you want in a locker room. And that's what Robert Sala and Joe Douglas seem to want to build here culture-wise with the New York Jets. It seemed to me that twice the Jets got really lucky here, Mark, because at number 34, the guy that they probably would have taken at 23 had they not traded up for Vera Tucker and Elijah Moore slid to them. And then at number 107, the guy that they probably would have taken with that Seattle pick, number 86, in the third round, slid to them there in the fourth. What do you think about Michael Carter? On paper, he sure seems like a really good addition. Yeah, and, and especially, as you mentioned, where they got him. That happens in the draft sometimes where – you have certain players valued and they just, you think they'll go a certain spot and then they just don't go there. And you're like, Oh, awesome. You know, you, you hear, Oh, well, this is the highest guy on our board, but you know, that's kind of, you know, overplayed where guys are just not telling the truth where, uh, but th there are times where you think guys will go much higher than what they do. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, just Michael Carter's scheme, they had the, their, their North Carolina backfield last year with him and, and Javante was really what you want in an NFL back backfield where it's not you know the days of just giving the ball to one guy 30 times is gone it's a mix and match of different players with different skill sets and different strengths uh, and so I think they had the perfect mix and you know so an NFL backfield will try to replicate that certainly with the Jets uh, where I don't think that they have a, a lead guy um, but a couple interesting guys and now you put him into the mix where you know as you mentioned versatile he's smaller but uh, you know, he, he knows how to run it, you know, kind of a one cut path runner who can just really hit the hole and burst, um, you know, good out the backfield. So I think he's excellent just to be a rotational sort of guy, has starter qualities, not your full time starter just as far as the talent, but definitely starter qualities, which mixes with other backs to help make the, the offense productive. Mark, what would you think of the overall strategy here for the Jets? Because they went offense, their first four picks. Zach Wilson, quarterback, Elijah Vera Tucker, who we assume is going to play guard. And then you had Elijah Moore, the wide receiver, and Michael Carter, the running back. Seems like what they decided was, we messed up with Sam Darnold, not surrounding him with premier talent. We're not going to do that again. 
more than anything, we want to make sure that he's taken care of and that we can build him up to what we're expecting him to be. If we have to wait on the defensive players, we'll wait on the defensive players. I'm sure Robert Sala probably said, I'll get what I can get out of the guys that I've got. Do you think that's the wise move or would you have mixed it up a little bit more? No, I love the, the, the approach that they took. And it, you could see it kind of coming into clarity as it was going on, certainly when they traded up for Vera Tucker and then definitely when they took when they took Elijah Moore that, and, and again, as you mentioned, even though Joe Douglas didn't draft Sam Darnold, I'm sure he saw the, he definitely saw the fallout of what happened there with him. And it was the, okay, we did not do it right the first time, but we're going to do it right this time. And it wasn't just this draft. It was the off season of signing Corey Davis. And it was last year's draft with, you know, kind of almost foreshadowing with, with helping uh, trying to help Sam with, with drafting Denzel Mims and, and drafting Makai Becton. So even though Zach Wilson wasn't on the roster, it still was he was trying to do things to help Sam at that time. But now it's really just going to help uh, Zach Wilson. And, you know, I think right now if you just look at their their offensive unit on paper, it's it's re- pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's really good to say, all right, this he has enough to succeed. And, you know, as a, it's, that really is excellent for Robert Sala as a defensive uh, minded head coach to kind of sacrifice his side of the ball to say, okay, what is best for the organization? What is best for this team? What is best for this guy that we just took with the second pick in the draft? And I'm sure that was discussed as well. All the, all that stuff. It wasn't as if they got the draft day and he, he got kind of tricked by this. I mean, they talked about this strategy, I'm sure for weeks. Uh, but, but again, even, even the off season with the D was signing Carl Lawson and Sheldon Rankins uh, that, you know, they got a couple guys there, obviously some more work to do. But um, I I think the strategy was excellent. And they had a different strategy the rest of the way after Michael Carter. It was all defensive players from there. They had a bunch of picks late in the fifth and the sixth round. And so they spent them in that area. Because of what happened with coronavirus, was this what Daniel Jeremiah was talking about, where teams only had grades on X amount of players and because they couldn't get as much information as normal, they sort of just decided to throw darts in the late rounds because that's what it felt like the Jets were doing. They were just throwing darts and telling Robert Sala, pick some guys that you think you might like. Let's hope one or two of them turns into something. Did you find that to be the strategy, and was that more or less what you saw league-wide? No, I think when that kind of narrative got put out there, I think it's a disservice to what scouts do and and the, the work that they put in throughout the year. And I didn't know of any scout that said they shortchanged their process this year. Was it different? Certainly. Could they do things not – they had to do things differently? Sure. But there still was plenty of calls to the coaches and the people that they knew. There still was plenty of digging. There still was plenty of film to watch. So I, I didn't see that at all. What what happens is when you just get to a certain point in the draft, your, your board really falls off of – you know, playmakers, and then you've got solid starters and then excellent backups. And then really most of the draft, maybe at some point in the fourth on, is just they're all kind of the same player, and you're just trying to find redeeming qualities that you feel that your staff can work with. And, you know, it's easy. You know, I'd be in the fifth round, sixth round, like, all right, guys, now we have to pick someone now. We Just don't tell me what he can't do at this point. We need to know what, you know, we've talked about it in drafting, but certainly on draft day, like, what can he do? What is the best thing this guy does that can work with us? So I think in the case of the Jets and their draft, and I think around the league, is that's just what you're seeing. And it's just the fact that the common people doesn't know these guys' names. So it seems like, well, who is this guy? Well, 
about five, you know, about 150 of these guys, people have no idea who they are. So it seems as if they're just coming out of nowhere, but the scouts know who they are and they've been digging on them. So let's just use the case of, let's say, uh, you know, Hamsa uh, from Florida State, the safety, uh, Nazareth Dean from, from Florida State, where, okay, this guy's big, he's competitive, um, you know, he's had the injuries, but okay, what are what is his upside? What can he be for us? So the scouts definitely knew that and had studied him to know, all right, here are the things that he can do well. Let's see if he can and fit and make our defense, coaching, staff. Can you work with this guy? Sure. Okay, this is what we'll do. Uh, so I think they knew enough about him to say to to pull it pull the card on on a, a Hamsa sort of player. What did you think of the late round picks that the Jets made? Any that stood out to you in a positive or negative way? Yeah, he'd be the one, you know, just uh, you know because he was so he almost played him like a safety, and you're looking some more teams are looking more of that hybrid safety linebacker role. Colleges have been have been playing with those kind of guys forever, and it's just kind of still trickling up because it's one thing to evaluate a, a hybrid guy in college, but then once you start getting with your coaching staff and the, the, the safety coach is saying, well, you know what? I don't think he can play safety. And then the linebacker coach is saying, well, I don't think he can play a scout is looking at it as this guy can do it all. But then when you sit with your coaches, the, neither one of the guys want him. And he talked to your defensive coordinator and he's saying, well, I'm not going to create a special role for this guy. So those guys are kind of getting passed, have gotten passed over historically, but now, more teams are kind of accepting these guys and trying to make a role for them and trying to see the value in the hybrid players. So I think if he stays healthy, he'll, he'll be a good player and used in the right way for his strengths. He'll, he'll be a good player. So I know you liked those first four picks. What did you think overall? What grade would you give? I hate to do this because obviously we're not going to really know what grade any team deserves until several years later when we see what these players turn into, but what range would you put them in? Right. Yeah, they were, they were easy a for me because I love Zach Wilson. And then I love Barrett Tucker. I love Elijah Moore. It, it was funny. A, a, a good friend of mine, he texts me as uh, someone I had helped out. He's a writer and he, he puts all this stuff together and he's like, the Jets, the Jets got your draft for, you know, they doing your draft. Because, <laughs> Those three of those guys, they're really, if I had to rank a top five of my, just my favorite players in the draft, they would have been three of them. And um, so I really love what they did and just, just, but just the vision for helping Zach. Um, I, I will have to admit though, that Miami also crushed it too. And I think they, they had helped Tua with Jalen Waddell and then Liam Eikenberg in a second, but they also did an outstanding job on defense where they, they got Jalen Phillips, who I thought was the best pass rusher in the draft, all the way at number 18, um, and, and, and then got Javon Holland, the safety, who maybe, you know, I had him up as the second best safety um, in the draft there in the second as well. So I, I think the Jets were outstanding, but I just give the Dolphins a slight edge just because they got both, uh, you know, impact players on both sides of the ball. Let's dig in on that a little bit because you just mentioned that you think Miami did a great job. When you look at the rest of the league – any winners and losers that stood out to you and any specific moves that you thought were good or bad? Well, the, we, we mentioned the, the Chicago move. That was the move of the weekend for me. When that went down, it's like, this is it right here. And, and again, because it was bigger than on the field, it was, it was an organizational move that this guy could, you know, save the franchise almost, Justin Fields. And just, I just, and just because I hold him in such high esteem as a player and a playmaker, and you just don't pass up that sort of talent 
when you have the chance to take him and time will tell if San Fran made the right move. But even Atlanta at four, taking as much as I love Kyle Pitts, and I think he was just a special, special guy. If if Matt Ryan can't play anymore, then you made a mistake there. And then Denver passing on Justin as well. So, you know, those sort of teams, it's a big risk to, to pass up what you did. But I think I think Cleveland got outstanding value with Newsom and JOK there in the second round. So, you, you know, those are the Chargers, you know, getting Rashawn Slater and then at 13 and Asante Samuel Jr. in the second round, I thought was outstanding, outstanding value. And, and teams that kind of shaky were, you know, we talk, got to talk about Las Vegas where they took Alex Leatherwood there, the tackle from Alabama, who I thought was really a, a mid-second to third-round pick and just totally over overdrafted him. And the, the justification was saying, well, we didn't want to miss out on him. Well, okay, that doesn't mean you overvalue a player and take him a round or two higher than he should get taken. So I thought that was real shaky. And, and again, um, go back to Seattle with the only having three picks and, uh, you know, from the Jamal Adams trade. It's just, was that worth it? Was, was, was it worth getting Jamal Adams and now not having any picks for the next couple of years? And so that, that's a big question mark for me. Going to be interesting to see how all this shakes out right now a ton of optimism around the New York Jets and I hope these players turn out the way that Mark thinks they're going to because if they do then we're in for some exciting years ahead as Jets fans. Mark Ross of NFL Network formerly of the New York Giants front office thank you so much for coming back on the show really appreciate it. Like I said, you're rapidly becoming one of my favorite guests, so hopefully you'll come back soon. In the meantime, though, I know you got plenty going on because you're analyzing what went down with the draft and getting ready for the next phase of the NFL, which is going to be taking a look at what happens in training camp and, of course, these June 1st cuts and all that. So what do you got going on, and how can people follow you on social media? Yeah, I'm just on Twitter, at Mark Ross, Mark with a C. Um, so I kind of post most of my stuff. I need to increase my social media presence. I'm, I'm still old school with that, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'll be on uh, Friday on the network most of the day talking about things and just you know doing a lot of fun podcasts like this and radio shows and all. And uh, you know, hopefully, get a chance to enjoy the summer a little bit. That's the beautiful part of the early part of summer if you cover the NFL is that there's not much going on. It doesn't start until training camp right around the middle of July. So you do have that little break to relax. And especially if you live on the East Coast, you can enjoy the beach when you now can transition from having been cold earlier in the year. Some of these <laughs> other places, of course, you're warm all year long. So that'll be a fun thing for all of us to enjoy here on the East Coast. And we got plenty for you to enjoy on our website, playlikeajet.com right now. Clayton Smarslock has an article up outlining the free agents that are still available for the Jets that they could go after. <coughs> Steven Nelson. So you can check that out. We've also got a write-up of all the late-round picks and the undrafted free agents that the Jets were able to get. And that's from Tommy Griffinkrantz. Check out our YouTube channel where we've got cut-ups on Elijah Moore. And, of course, we've got one on Michael Carter. That is courtesy of Luke Grant. We've got that Kendrick Green video up, the interior offensive lineman from Illinois, which has over 10,000 views. Thank you, Steelers fans. Really appreciate that. So if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, go ahead and do that. And if you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could go ahead and do that for us, really appreciate it. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. Doesn't take you much time, doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you could go ahead and do that for us, We'd be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts and content, you know where to go. 
That's Play Like a Jet Digital and playlikeajet.com.